Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. Uh, I'm the director of the centre and an author. And today I'm joined all the way from the other side of the world by AJ Lancaster. Uh, AJ, tell us where I am talking to you. Where are you sitting at the moment? Uh, I am currently sitting in my office in the city of Palmerston North, um, which is in the North Island of New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're, it's, it's, it's literally across the world we're talking. Now, AJ... Uh, yeah, um, I think it's, it's about as far away from the UK as you can get, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> fantasy is bringing us together. Um, so AJ came across my radar because I uh, came across her fantastic series, which will come to the Stariel series, which will come to in a moment. Um, but you can't escape, AJ. Anybody who comes out of New Zealand and meets a fantasy fan is always going to be asked about what their feelings are about Middle Earth basically becoming synonymous with New Zealand. I'm basically expecting you to be a cousin of Peter Jackson or something. <laughs> Is this true? Uh, oh, yes, obviously, we're all, we're all related to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as, as, just like every New Zealander owns 10 sheep. Um, yeah. that's, 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 and we're all hobbits. Um, it is one of those uh, those strange things that gets associated with New Zealand when you're when you're overseas or you're talking to someone from overseas. Um, is Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, sheep, rugby, one of those three, depending on your audience. <laughs> um, so for me, I I'm gonna I'm gonna commit sacrilege and say I actually like the movies better than the books. <laughs> Oh no! In the, in the broadcast. <laughs> in the, yeah, you might you can you can take that out later. Um, uh, I think it's I'd like I, I honor what Tolkien did for the genre, but it's not my it's not my preferred style. I guess I I like a, a slightly more modern, slightly faster paced thing, whilst admiring all the work he did inventing languages and all the kind of myth kind of level. Uh, in terms of New Zealand, uh, it's a very strange thing because New Zealand is really beautiful and I feel like the the movies really captured that and a lot of it does look like that. <laughs> uh, but Lord of the Rings, you know, places like the Shire, I, I, the land that Tolkien was imagining is, is clearly more England. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is an odd disconnect, isn't it? Because... 
I, I think I live somewhere much more like the Shire than than the Hobbiton that, that was created, which felt. Have you oh, have you yeah. ever been to New Zealand? <laughs> no, I'd love to come. I I, I, I should should come. The, the Hobbiton is it is very charming. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose what I was thinking about was more. Um, it's it's quite obviously it's a film set, so it's relatively small, and it doesn't have the network of villages that the Shire actually is, and the pubs and the sense of rival communities and Buckland and all the rest of it, which is absolutely necessary for a film set. Whereas places I live near are very like that, and I think you don't have to worry about being identified as a Hobbit because you know there's plenty of us <laughs> over here too. Anyway, um, so I was wondering if you felt that the use of the Middle Earth landscapes as being synonymous with New Zealand kind of get in the way of your own fantasy, creative, you know, your imagination because you feel it's already been used in that way? Um, uh, no, not really because although although the, the sort of movie has that sort of very iconic landscapes, it doesn't feel like New Zealand, if that makes sense. Like, oh, right. Now that that would be an interesting challenge. If I came and visited it, would I um think? Would I be walking around with entirely the wrong wrong lens? I think I might be. I reckon a lot of these package tours might. Well, you would see it. particular bits, of it, or like like you say, like you go, you would go to the, you know, the tourist set at uh, Matamata, which is Hobbiton. That's where they <laughs> built it. Um, but uh, something you said about the you know, like New Zealand doesn't have the the little connections of villages or to other villages. It's that kind of weight of human history. Like, mm. um, obviously, New Zealand does have its own history, uh, and we have our own Indigenous people. Uh, but in terms of the length of human occupation, like, like in in England, there are pubs that are five hundred years old, and it's not that unusual. Oh. But <laughs> that is that is not the case in New Zealand. You know, we don't have uh, you know, it's debatable when when Māori first came to New Zealand, but say roughly a thousand years ago or so. Um, but then, if you go back f much further than that, you know, two thousand years ago, there were there were people in England building things, but there were birds here. <laughs> um, and I'm getting off point. Um, but in terms of like you know, like the flora and fauna, they sort of that's not so much in the movies, I guess, because it wouldn't fit with the kind of Tolkien-esque, really? yeah. all, all, our, all our kind of bird life and, like, a little bit of the bush, but the, the spots they chose, they chose particularly to more represent kind of very English and European flora, flora and trees and things. Um, so when I kind of watch the movies, although I can pick out particular landscapes, it's not, it doesn't kind of evoke kind of that feeling of walking through the New Zealand bush because it, it doesn't really look so much like that. It has a very different look. Um, well, that's reassuring to know that they haven't edged out the fantasy potential for, for yourself as a writer. But let's come my, to my neighbourhood, as it were, because um, you told me that you wrote the first draft of the first book in your series, The Lord of Stariel, while living in Oxford. Um, so did you find the city itself as a, a source of inspiration. I mean, there's a, a lot of Oxford and Cambridge, I think, in your other city in your book. Well, one of your other cities is called Knoxbridge. Um, uh, yes. 
Coming, cunningly disguised. Cunningly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's no one, no one will ever guess. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I wrote, I wrote the first draft. I had just moved to Oxford. Um, I'd moved to Oxford in October and I think around 2014. Uh, and I was starting a new job in, uh, in November and I needed a way, I needed a way to meet people. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll write a novel for, um, National Novel Writing Month, which is November. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of where... Stariel came from, and it was very influenced by uh, living in England, um, by the kind of uh, November is kind of the weather's getting kind of colder, so all the kind of like, particularly like the lamps and like the that kind of old old style architecture that there's so much of around there and the beautiful buildings. Um, and I'd also recently been up to uh, done a little bit of travelling up in Scotland. Um, ah, it's hence the Lord from the North idea. In the, the yeah, story. yeah. Well, I and I'd 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 been rewatching an old um, series for a little while ago called Monarch of the Glen. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so which has uh, as a sort of initial, it's, it's it's sort of set in modern times, but the sort of the kickoff of the TV show is that the sort of black sheep of the family gets a call that his, his father's dead and goes back to the crumbling old estate in Scotland. Um, and so I sort of had that in my head uh, and the sort of season of the, the turn of seasons. Um, and I thought, oh, but it would be much cooler if it was magical and set further ago and if the main character was a woman. Um, <laughs> I think AJ's is great because it's exactly the way that our sort of magpie tendency as writers should be used. Like you watch something like Monica the Glen, which is entirely, entirely different. Um, yes. <laughs> your series, but you take the thing which sparks your imagination and turn that into your opener because you've got your wonderful main character, Heta, who was living a life of relative freedom down in the main city as a illusionist on uh, in the stage company answering the call to go back to the ancestral home to find out which of um, her family, uh, the Valstars, is that right? Yes, yes. Um, is going to be picked as the next Lord of Stariel. So let's, that takes us to the location of your story. Um, your series feels it, it has the feeling of a historical fantasy, but it doesn't have a spe specific location. Uh, it has in, at its heart a, little, a wonderful little wonderful concept of a little independent kingdom which has a foot in the fey world and a foot in the human world and that really is a character in the book in and of itself mm -hmm. in a in very important way um you've begun to mention that some of your imagery like the lamps and the old buildings are mm -hmm. taken from being there but what was the thought process behind setting it in this familiar but undefined world and then also the period that you pick which sort of maps maybe onto the interwar period in the 20th century possibly but then you might have a different view um i, I feel like my my reasoning was not very deep <laughs> uh, and was largely driven by cool aesthetics <laughs> where where i you know Things said in the past seem a bit cooler, but also I really like the idea of plumbing, <laughs> um, so everyone can, you know, wash. <laughs> so I didn't want to go like so far back that it was sort of pre, pre that kind of era. Um, and 
Yeah, so one of the big things is they're running a telephone line in and um... yeah yeah I sort of I sort of like that idea of like everything's kind of a bit old-fashioned still but they they're just starting to get some modern technologies like electricity and phone lines and things um but and I, I kind of wanted to do that sort of juxtaposition of uh where he has come from the sort of city down south that the technology is kind of more entrenched and more developed but it hasn't quite made it out as far as the kind of old estates that are still clinging on to the past and you know don't and, and are a little bit more magical and where people are a little bit more superstitious mm. um yeah I sort of so I sort of I very loosely used the kind of Edwardian time period but I did play very fast and loose <laughs> with historical accuracy uh and I have to admit that uh that's sort of driven by my own lack of desire to do huge amounts of research. Like I, I like looking a little bit up, but I, do, I knew if I said it like in a very firm historical time period, then that would entail checking, you know, checking dates and, and what people had had access to at particular times. And that would, that would have been just a, a very different approach, whereas I was more interested in, kind of the aesthetics really and, and weaving yeah. the fantasy through that I mean um, people are sort of looking for parallels I mean the Susanna Clark um Dr Norrell and Mr Strange or Mr Strange and Dr Norrell whichever way around that book is mm-hmm. it's very specifically in a Napoleonic war era and, and you know linked to history whereas her more recent book Piranesi is in more of a space that doesn't quite a uh, timeless but old-fashioned place and yours is more on the that end of the spectrum than the I'm interviewing yeah, well, if, if you said it if you said it in, an, in our world in a specific period of history then you kind of have to start you have to start considering like how real world historical events would have unfolded um mm. and I guess I I was less interested in that it, it's like it's a, an interesting path to take but it's it's a yeah. different path you sort of um yeah and the reason why it's it's said in the past at all <laughs> uh is because I, I really like the sort of those kind of old-fashioned uh social mores with the sort of sort of heightened melodrama over very what we would consider today very small st- stakes of like oh you know you have to you can't sort of break the the social rules or people will you know, gossip about you and and that sort of, uh, yeah, sort of propriety. Worrying about that kind of thing is is just a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, but, so there's two main characters who who fall foul of that because Hetta, as a unmarried woman, um, I'm not going to do any plot spoiling here, but she has <laughs> what's thrown at her by the male lords is her femaleness and her fitness. Uh, as a woman to rule but also to conduct her life in a way that they do but what she does she gets censored for Uh, Mm -hmm. and I love the way that your heroine is just so unapologetic she's come from a world prior to that which was much freer this theatre world and she just thinks they're all ridiculous and I love the fact that so often her thoughts are oh oh gosh I'm I'm pushing it's oh just get over it kind of uh, attitude and then her older brother Marius who is uh, gay and struggling with those urges there in a way which hopefully now in most many parts of the world that's no longer um that would just be accepted his is in a period when he has to hide that and that adds an extra drama to his 
his character. Talking about the sort of relationships and use of gender, I was really fascinated by the very natural use that you make of inter intersex characters in the Fey world. They just are like Lamorkin. Oh, non-binary non characters. Non-binary, yeah. yeah. Um, is that something which was influenced by the debates going on in the outer world or did you just feel that was right for the, you know, how did that emerge as a theme? Um, I guess I've always found gender really interesting, like to think about and play with. And uh, I have a lot of non-binary friends, so it seemed perfectly natural to have yeah. some in the books. Um, but I guess I was it was one of the things I wanted to do with the Fey culture was uh, in sort of contrast to the sort of human culture that is still quite sexist and, and very binary about what, you know, well, that there are only women and men and that men and women have very particular kind of ideas of what they should and shouldn't be. Uh, I kind of wanted to contrast that with the Fey culture, which has its own issues, but one of the things that they're quite good at is that they don't think about gender in the, quite the same way. Um, and so I sort of thought, well, if they, if if gender is sort of not an issue for them in the same way that it is for humans at this point in time, um, then it seems very natural that it would also be no big deal that there, there would naturally be non-binary and mm. trans day and that would just sort of that they wouldn't even necessarily have a, a word for that because it would just be as normal as any other kind of presentation. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's yeah. I, kind of, I kind of wanted it to just feel very, like, not unusual. Yeah, exactly. That was so relaxing because it wasn't like a message novel. It was one where this was just, this is how the world is. And it was nice to go there in your imagination and, and think. It gives it sort of a yeah, I mean, I... Mean, I one thing that I, I like, there are there would obviously have been non-binary people in, in, in terms of humans yeah, <laughs> in yeah. this world as well, but the story sort of doesn't focus on them, um, right. and and it would have been that would have been a bit harder to do in terms of they would have been pushing against sort of societal rules, so the story would have yeah. been had to be kind of more about that. If, yeah, if, you already had a couple yeah. of issues going on, so maybe that as an extra issue would have been another main character and it would, yeah. Yeah, it was something I wanted to include, but I, I yeah, there's only so many things you can do in a book exactly. <laughs> before it gets too long. A lot, of, um, a lot of writing is about choices, isn't it? You yeah. Know, that's the, um, so just thinking, I'm not sure I've done a good job of giving the flavour of it. Um, I was thinking, well, what is it like? I felt it for me, it felt really quite unique, but I suppose one story that came up to my mind was Cold Comfort Farm. I don't know if you know this story. It's a it's a mid twentieth century comedy novel um, where a a female character goes to a traditional household and shakes it up, and her presence there it's it's in the real world, but a comic real world. Uh, similar period, it kind of revolutionizes the household and how your first book starts not the later ones felt, felt a bit like that moment where you've got this catalyst coming into a traditional world the assumption is the lordship is going to pass to jack who's like the kind of steady hand like close to being like the old lord but it's you know 
I don't think it's too much of a plot spoiler to say it doesn't happen like that. So it has that fun and that feeling of a revolution happening within a, a world that's got kind of a bit too closed before you open up to the other worlds. But I should mention, of course, that it's also um, a, lo a love story, an interspecies love story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Wynn, Halloween, your wonderful butler come <laughs> steward come prince uh yes which is is also a plot spoiler but it's it's okay. fairly impossible to talk about the first book particularly without giving away bits that uh, i don't think the, the first book some things that are set up are, are relatively easy to see coming i feel like that's probably one of them um and yeah so the, there's sort of a, a twist that the the main estate uh that's called Stariel, uh, turns turns out to be, in addition to being a, a human estate, it's also uh, part of the fairy world. Um, and and the, the Fae have been absent from the world for several centuries for reasons that are later explained. Um, yeah. But they've, they've just sort of started coming back and one of them has been present on the estate in the guise of pretending to be a, a human butler and he's uh, he's sort of he's been sort of childhood friends with Hitta, the main character, uh, and then she went away to the, the city um, and sort of pursued her own life. And she's returned, um, and yes, they sort of have a, a a growing relationship over the over the course of the the four books. Um, uh, you don't want to spoil it too much. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, how do I? <laughs> but um, I think one of the things I would say, AJ, that I really appreciated um, is that your your plotting is excellent. So there were a couple of twists in the very first book, which one I thought, oh, I knew she was going to do that, and then you turn the tables again, and you think, oh, okay. Um, she she caught me out there so so I would really recommend people if you want to read a really just a good story it's there but also your overarching plot which I can't say too much about because that would be serious spoilers but there is um a release of information about why it all is as it is that comes gloriously to a head at the end of the fourth book um so you know um, oh, I, I thought it was, it was great. I really, really enjoyed that the way you did that. Uh, so, when when you plot books out, are you somebody who say starts with a character and just explores or a, a concept, or do you have like your post-it notes or your files in Scrivener or whatever with it all mapped out in advance? Um, I definitely don't plan it all in advance. <laughs> uh, I I usually start with kind of something about the world and the setting and the character, uh, and then a lot of it sort of comes from the character kind of saying, well, what, what would they do in this situation? If I throw this at them, what happens? How would they react? Um, and then I sort of find out things as I go along. Um, and then I do a huge amount of editing to make it look like I knew where I was going and <laughs> start. Um, so I'm very gratified to hear that that worked. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things I say to um, people I'm teaching on the creative writing courses we run, which is you may have written a, a scene where you mention in passing, oh, I don't know, a box on a table or a, a thing on mm -hmm. the wall. And then when you're thinking, oh, I need something, mm -hmm. some foreshadowing of this thing. Oh, remember that box I put in that scene? And you go back and you and you make that the clue but you didn't think of it at the time when you first put it yeah in. that is one of, was one of the lovely things about writing is when it feels like your brain kind of secretly set up a thing that yeah. you didn't know it was setting up until you get there and then you're like oh that's why we put that thing in back then yeah um which doesn't always happen perfectly and usually you have to go back and kind of smooth it out a bit, but mm -hmm. drop a few more hints or change something so that it's consistent um uh, I have thought of another thing I wanted to say about the romance. <laughs> oh, okay. Spill. Um, I'm allowed to go back. Um, one of the things I did really want to do with the romance particularly was I wanted to do a slightly untraditional uh, kind of relationship dynamic to what I'd read in a, a lot of books at the time that I was looking at, where I, I was reading a lot of romance books where the, the man was very like, uh, sort of in charge and commanding and sort of uh had lots of mistresses like the Bridgerton boys yeah yeah that's sort of like I, I guess the sort of classic uh sort of alpha male uh stereotype kind of thing mm. I I wanted to do I was like what if the guy was really like you know he, he's still confident but what, what if he was more what if he was more about like running the household <laughs> um, uh, and with her I wanted to do I wanted to make her kind of quite traditionally feminine in terms of you know being interested in uh, clothing and her appearance and stuff whilst also being very kind of strong but not in a way that was like uh, punching people strong but like so that was sort of a, a gender dynamic thing I was interested in doing there. Yeah, you um, didn't flip the roles. So it's not, no. not that she's become the alpha male and he's become the... No. It's more that they are individuals who aren't conforming to a particular prescribed role. So Heta, very, and this isn't a plot spoiler because very early on it's clear that she's, you know, she's had boyfriends and dated and had a sort of normal life um before she comes back home to the so she has that experience behind her and confidence of mm. not sort of being kept in the nursery really um and I think that that's good because it gives her mm. she's mature she's not the sort of simpering virgin type not that I not that I don't also like a good classic alpha male yeah. in romance or a simpering virgin there's there's definitely a, a a time and a place for both of those those kind of uh character types can be that can be enjoyed um but not as lord of stariel we need yeah it was just it was just a thing i was interested in playing with um yeah. so i was like oh, i should say that <laughs> i think that i won't say quite again it's a plot spoiler to say too much but i think you did that really well and um it doesn't feel basically you believe in the magnetism and the sexual attraction between them which could be the casualty here if if it wasn't right you, you feel that they they get each other and they are the the pull together from, based on this childhood friendship that's grown. It's very convincing and, and sweet and lovely. So yeah, um, I was looking when I got to the end of the 
last book, I read re- that was the point at which I read your little biography about yourself. And you describe yourself as an independent writer. So what's your journey to publishing been like? And have you got any tips for listeners wanting to follow in a similar path? Because you're a bit less scary because I think they can understand how your writing journey started. But um, as, oh, well, I'm going to try a novel in a November. And many people might be thinking that as well. But you've done the, the steps beyond that. Spill um, all the beans on how that happened. Uh, so before I wrote Little Old Stereo, I had I had written, I tried to write other things um, that were more kind of epic fantasy style things. Uh, and I that I always kind of gotten lost in the boggy middle. And so I thought, oh, with this one, I'm just gonna write, I'm gonna write like a short, simple, straightforward, standalone, no epics. Um, <laughs> and it's never going to see the light of day, um, so it doesn't matter. Um, so I can just just have fun, just write something that's fun for me. Uh, and then, obviously, it is not a standalone and it is published. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's sort of – so I originally had no intention to, to publish it. Um, and then as it sort of grew and I ended up writing, I, I sort of – I wrote – I wrote – drafts of all the books before I thought about publishing because I knew that I would need to know where the series was going um and so I and I and I am I am self-published <laughs> probably should have said that at the start um so I'm self-published uh and the reasons I chose that were many and several that there, there are definitely advantages to going independent and there are advantages to going traditional um I decided that I decided that um, self-publishing would to give it a go. Uh, I had some advantages in that I have a background in editing um, and in publishing. Like I, I've done uh, typesetting and sort of production management. Um, so I knew I knew some bits of the process that I felt confident I could do to a good standard, uh, and that was sort of my my kind of commitment to myself. I was like, well, if I'm going to self-publish that, I want it to be, I want it to be sort of indistinguishable from a yeah. traditionally published book to the people reading it. You know, I don't want it to feel like it hasn't had uh, enough at- attention or enough polish. Um, uh, so it was quite a long process um, and quite a lot of that was me levelling up a bit in my craft. So the first book particularly went through a lot of drafts. <laughs> Um, and you had a, a whole crew of beta readers uh, in your thanks. At the yeah, yeah, and a lot of that was be- a lot of that was beta reading. So getting getting other people to read it and give me feedback, and then letting it sit for a bit and going back to it and that sort of thing. Um, How did you come I up think- with your cover design, which is very strong? Um, so I was just going to say, like one of the key things when you're self-publishing is you is getting your covers right. Because um, your cover is your kind of single most important kind of marketing asset. Um, so you want a, a, a cover that signals the genre really clearly. Uh, so you go and look at other books that are sort of similar to yours, which was a bit hard for me because at the time there wasn't that much that felt similar. So trying to figure out what my subgenre was and how best to signal that was a bit tricky but I eventually came down on that kind of look because there were there were sort of a couple of, of books that were doing kind of that sort of style of kind of 
that kind of my, my covers are sort of illustrated but kind of in a very kind of cut out sort of look mm. um and i found a designer i liked and uh did she's turned out to be brilliant and has done all, all my covers um and I, I wanted them to sort of convey convey the kind of vibe of the book that it was it was fantasy it was sort of historical feeling um that it was whimsical um yeah, which so I'm, I'm very pleased with my covers, and I, I think they are a large have contributed hugely to the success I've had with that series. I think a lot of people uh, took a chance on them because they saw the covers and were like, "Oh, what is that?" Um, yeah, so yeah. So my my advice for indie publishing would be, yeah, level up your craft <laughs> as well as you yeah, can. I'm professional mean, about it, I suppose. Um, Get a, a good cover that signals the genre uh, and, you know, do research on what, what, what you think your audience is likely to, to find appealing, kind of what they're looking for, uh, and the same with the blurb, uh, and find, like, a group of like-minded people to, to support you and bounce ideas off and, and give feedback. Uh, there's, there's heaps of resources out there for indie authors now um lots of facebook groups and discord servers and people on twitter and um yeah so find find the the group of those that works for you um and the other great thing about indie publishing is uh you can always change stuff because you yeah. have power which <laughs> so you know you can uh set up a new pen name if the if the first one didn't work or or you can change the covers or you can you can change the whole book if if you know, you look at it later and think, oh, actually I've improved so much since then and now I sort of don't want this up under my name. Um, and yeah. I forgot, did you have a, like a budget? Sorry, this is quite tech techy questions here. But <laughs> I'm genuinely interested. Did you have a budget for um, promoting the book or was it an organic growth through readers? Um, I did do a little bit of, of, of marketing, but uh, not a huge amount in the beginning. I... I I paid to list it on like a reviewing site, the first book, so to get it into the hands of like book bloggers and things. Um, and I've run a few like sales promotions, um, but it was a very, it was sort of very organic, slow build. Like it wasn't, it definitely wasn't a success <laughs> straight out of the gate. Uh, mm. It took time around, I think around when book three came out, uh, which is this is this is uh, general received indie wisdom is there's something magical about three the number three <laughs> like that when you have three books out in a series um, I don't know maybe readers think oh I, I believe that they're going to finish the series or <laughs> um, so yeah it helped it helped once there was three books out but it's a lot of it's been word of mouth I've been very um, fortunate to get some really good reviews and. Uh, by you know uh, various blogging sites and uh, in places large and small that have all kind of helped as it's gone along the way, um, which that, has been that, really cool. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating because I think that that's one of the areas where a lot of people are looking. Um, to see how do you know the the secrets of success and your organic word of mouth is still there? Um, we should reassure. Yeah. 
you didn't yeah it, it it really is it's not it's not going to give you i mean there are people that do go sort of viral overnight but you don't have to go viral <laughs> to find success which is sort of reassuring um yeah and i think that's where the kind of attention to craft and and making the kind of package look appealing of the kind of cover blurb content really helps you out because that's gonna get you the word of mouth um it also helps if what you've written appeals to people and that's a harder thing to I think try and do purposefully yeah. I think it, I was lucky in that I, I kind of wrote these books for me and it turned out that what I wanted to read there was other people that wanted to read it but there's also like six billion people on earth so with the right with indie publishing you mostly sell ebooks so you can kind of sell to people all over the world so even if your audience is potentially quite small you know that out of six million people, that's a lot of people. Seven yeah. million people. How many are up to now? <laughs> I, actually, I actually came to um, your books because I, I I consume a lot of audio versions of things, and I think it might even have been on one of the deals where it was. So that worked. One of your sales, um, but also because Finty Williams was reading and she read my very first book. She's Finty Williams is she probably gets annoyed by this, but she's Judy <laughs> and uh, an actress over here. And so immediately I saw that name. I thought, oh, um, that's going to be well read. So this is worth me trying. So first question, I suppose, to you is what do you think of the audio adaptation? The last book is read by somebody else, isn't it? Mm. Um, with a not dissimilar voice, so it's not jarring. Um, and have you sort of thought about your listening audience and that Im impact on you? Because the received wisdom is that there's not – people don't get much back from commission, commissioning an audio book, but maybe you've bucked that trend. Oh, I, I, so I, I, I have to take back my indie author claims because my audio books are actually done by Podium. Um, so I have a publisher just who just does the audio books. Um, oh, that's interesting. They, they, I've not heard that. Can you tell me, tell us more, tell us more. Um, so they approached me. <laughs> they approached me and were like, we would like to make audiobooks of your mm. books. Here are our terms. What do you think? Um, so I, I talked to them about it um, and decided that that would be good because I, 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 I wanted to have them on audio, but it is, as you say, it's quite it's quite expensive to do it yourself if you're having to pay uh, for someone to narrate them. And mm. I wasn't sure whether I could justify um, putting the cost in. Um, so I was I was happy to to let them do it, and they they have a, a good reputation as a, an audiobook publisher. Um, and at the time, I hadn't really listened to many audiobooks. I felt I felt like I didn't really have the expertise um, to to do it myself to judge what was needed. Um, now I have listened to quite a lot of audiobooks. I've gotten really into them. Um, but when but at the time, I, I when they sent me the the recordings. Uh, I was a bit uncertain. I was like, oh, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to cope with hearing someone else read my book out loud. But I, I started listening to it and then immediately was just entranced. I was like, oh, my goodness. Fundy has made this sound like... Sound quite good. <laughs> yeah, sound good. How? <laughs> like, what kind of dark sorcery is this? Like, like I was like, oh, I, I want to keep listening to find out what happens. <laughs> I, I like, remember oh, that experience most on a book of mine, um, which I published yeah. a long while ago now, but it's called The Ship Between the Worlds. It's a middle grade fantasy about pirates yeah. uh, in a fantasy setting. And I had two main 
pirate captains in it. And the actor who took on the part had decided to give one of them a really broad Glaswegian accent, which I hadn't written into the script mm. or the book at all. Um, and when as soon as I heard it, I thought, well, obviously he has a Glaswegian accent. I mean, that was just waiting to be unlocked. And, and so he, he sort of, it's where you're no longer in control of your own book. Mm -hmm. it, was, and, it was like getting to read alongside someone else and see how they were interpreting it as they were reading it, which yeah. was um, which was fascinating because, you know, normally you only get to know what you yourself think as you read something. Um, but, yeah, that, that same thing of seeing how they do accents for different characters that you haven't specified and being like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, valid. <laughs> I hadn't really imagined that, but yeah, um, yeah. As so I, I, I've really loved. Uh, I've really enjoyed Vinti's, um narration. Uh, I'm very pleased with it. Um, yeah, and and it's it's really nice to have audiobooks um, now that I, as I said, I, I listen to a lot more audiobooks generally because um, they're so. They're so convenient. You can listen to them while you're doing other things. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. why, for me, you know, it's the driving yeah. in the car thing. Um, that's what I that's what I listen to. So what next for AJ? Are you you mentioned in your notes at the end of the fourth book that you might do a fifth. Is that happening? Uh, yes. So that is what I'm currently working on. Um, uh, it's so I'm it's. It's sort of, I guess it's technically book five and that it does follow chronologically, even though book four is very definitely the conclusion of the series. Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. run. Um, uh, but this book is about, uh, it's about another, it's about a different character. It's about um, Hedda's brother who has is sort of becomes a more prominent uh, side character over, over the four books. And in this book is sort of his book um, with him as the main character. Uh, and I'm trying to make it kind of self-contained and also kind of work potentially, even if you haven't read the first four books, which we'll see if I manage to do that successfully. Um, uh, and it's a romance and also a murder mystery. Ah. <laughs> uh, because I thought that would be a good way to stop the plot from accidentally turning into four books, uh, which is what happened with The Lord of Starial. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so that should hopefully, I'm hoping to get that out this year. Um, it's un underway at the moment. Well, all the best with that. I look forward to reading it when it does come out. Um, at the end of my podcast, I always ask my guest to choose a fantasy world in which it's the best to be something. So we've done all sorts of things from, you know, the best place to go for a drink, like the best tavern, um, best place to be a warrior, you know, loads of things. Uh, and I thought that picking up the wider theme of your book, which has this love story between people of different sort of species, if that you've had a thought where in all the fantasy worlds you've read or watched is a good place to be in love with somebody from a different race, well, species. <laughs> um, I had to think about this one for a while because I, I feel like the setup of most fantasy worlds is that it's there's usually tension between yeah. um love with someone from a different species and I decided that it would have to be like fantasy romance because that way you would you would definitely get a happy ending <laughs> with the person you fell in love with um and I thought it would probably be a good idea for it to be like some kind of shifter romance shifter because oh, yeah yeah then, then whoever you you fell in love with you'd also get the bonus of like their 
um, you know, if you fell in love with a werewolf, you'd get kind of the sort of big extended family as well. <laughs> um, so I have chosen uh, Nalini Singh, who is a New Zealand author who writes uh, kind of paranormal, paranormal fantasy romance um, series. Uh, I feel like her worlds, even though a lot of bad things happen, like uh, the romances always work out happily and there's a lot of like extended family vibes. <laughs> so I decided that would be the best. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for mentioning Shifter Romances because I, I hadn't thought of those. I was thinking, oh, maybe something science fiction was what I was thinking. Um, I, mean, I mean, it is, yeah, what is not science fiction, but it is speculative fiction. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to actually go, I've changed my pick uh, hearing you. I'm, I like the um, Patricia Briggs, Mercedes Thompson series, mm. which is, uh the Mercedes Thompson is a car mechanic but also she is a Native American coyote shifter and her relationship is with a, a more traditional werewolf shifter mm -hmm. so you've got um and it's just it's so funny it's a brilliantly handled as well as the serious plot there's so much comedy in it but the um the imagine, imagining these different species and how they can come together. She brings the hostility between coyotes and wolves into how Mercedes is accepted or not accepted in the pack, which adds a whole dimension to a love story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Romeo and Juliet aspect without the tragic, you know, <laughs> ending. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I that so we've gone we've gone werewolf. Excellent. Mm. Uh, werewolf, or I'm thinking of Melanie Singh's like Psy Changing series where they have werewolves, but also like people with psychic abilities. Excellent. Yeah. This sounds good. Yeah. I haven't read these. And I thought oh, I'd, you should. They're, they're I've read almost all there was of the um, werewolf stories because I love a good shifter series. Yeah, they're not all werewolves, but they're all animals that they change into. So. Absolutely, that sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> so thanks so much, AJ, for joining me today. And um, just to, we'll put a, a link to your books in the show notes so people can find them. But just so if you've come to the end of this, series, this uh, episode and you're thinking, I really want to go and read AJ's books now, you just need to look up AJ Lancaster, Lord Astariel, and that will take you to the first book in the series. So thank you so much, AJ, and uh, all the best with book five. Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure.
And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.